Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full length members only version every week, join Slate Plus at Slate.com slash PrudyPod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Helen Rosner, the food correspondent for The New Yorker and a former editor at places like Eater. Ooh, I don't know how to say the name of this magazine. I've only ever seen it written down. Helen, how do you pronounce the second magazine in your bio? Sever. Sever. Oh, I would never have guessed that. Thank you. I would have said severe. Um, and New York Magazine. I can say that. <laughs> Hi, Helen. Hi. Hi. It's so funny because saveur is actually a French word. Like, it's the word for flavor. And if you're saying it with a proper French accent, which I cannot do, you'd say, like, saveur. And, and and I don't know, just sort of, like, by, by like, fiat, like, ex-cathedra, the founders of the magazine were, like, saveur. It's a French word that we're going to say with an American accent. And we once had a French receptionist who would, like, answer the phone saying it properly. And, oh God! And I remember one of the editors had to sort of like pull him aside and gently correct his pronunciation and be like, "No, don't say it right. Say it wrong. Say it our way." Um, Grace has this theory that I can be tricked into learning French by making me guess it. <laughs> like she'll just say phrases in French and say, "What do you think that means?" And I say, "I don't know what it means," and I cannot make an educated guess. Um, there's a limit to how much knowing a little Spanish can help me guess French, but that does not stop her from periodically saying things in French to me and making me guess. I support her effort. I mean, seems like a fun game. It is delightful. Um, neither of us ever quite gets what we want out of it, which feels <laughs> like something that French ought to facilitate is like mild marital frustration. Right. Um, so I think it's all working out great. Well, congratulations. I'm so glad. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show, um, in part because you give the best advice about food. Thank you. So I'm just hoping we can expand that to everything today. Yeah, I give the best advice about everything. That is 100% true. So you're I just going to tell everybody what they need to do in order to live right, and I'm just going to stand in the background <laughs> and periodically say things um, that are both like encouraging and French-sounding, <laughs> and that's how we're going to get through it. Yeah, let's find out if my confidence in myself is wildly overplaced. Great. Uh, I can't think of any better like testing ground for confidence than somebody acting like they're like your grandmother. So I think you get to take the first letter. And if anyone can break you down, it's going to be her. All right. Let's start. My neighbor decided to grandmother me. Dear Prudence, there's an old lady around the corner from mine who I accidentally smiled at one day at the bus stop. And now she's decided she's my grandma. 
which isn't a malicious thing itself. But she asked for my number and I didn't know how to say, no, you can't have it. And now she calls up and keeps asking me round for coffee and stopping me when I'm out for a run to give me food I don't like. I don't want to go over and I get that she's probably lonely, but I still live with my parents and we all want to be left alone. And now none of us want to answer the phone. What do I do? Is there a polite way to say I don't need another grandma? Or should I resign myself to a life of well-intentioned harassment? I feel inclined um, to be sympathetic towards this old woman who is clearly lonely and is not as yet being like a jerk so much as just a little bit bad at reading the situation. Um, So I I think I'm going to lean slightly in the direction of to what, like, what can you offer this woman? Like, how much begrudging time are you willing to give her? Like, is it a phone call a week? Uh, Is it thank you when she hands you a plate of food and you're on a run and then you politely, you know, give it to somebody else or throw it away later? Um, Where does your ceiling and her floor meet, I guess, is my take. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, frequently when I when I read the the letters that, that people send in to your column, like, I have a very clear sense immediately of the good guy and the bad guy in the situation. Mm-hmm. And this seems like there is not really a, a bad guy, you know? Like, both parties here seem to have sort of like a core of beautiful love in their hearts, and they want to do the right thing, and they want to connect with humans. They just want to do it on their terms, and their terms happen to be different. But at the same time, I also think, and I I respect that the letter writer is expressing their emotional boundaries and wants to enforce them. And they absolutely, without exception, have every right to maintain those boundaries wherever they want them to be. I will say, though, that like befriending a random elderly neighbor is the ultimate narrative trope. You know, like this is the thing that like people who want nonfiction book deals or people who want to write screenplays or people who want to have like hundred million dollar memoirs like this is the this is the stuff of dreams. Like I would I would. It's a significant subplot in the film The Holiday. It's a significant subplot in everything. It's it's Tuesdays with Maury. It's like it's the whole like I feel like every plucky, you know, adolescent hero or heroine of any story like has some mysterious older person that they've befriended like you know, Doc and Back to the Future. Like, everybody has, like, that cool, secret, weird old friend who teaches you about life and mysteries and science and immigration and stuff. So, like, you, and the universe has provided you with this, with, like, your your magical elderly friend. Yeah, I mean, she may not be a magical person. I don't want to, like, go too far in the other direction and assume that she is just, like, an actual fairy godmother <laughs> and if you lunch fair. with her once a week, she will leave you everything in her will and, like, change your life. Sure. But, um... I think this is a good example of sometimes I hear from people who know how to cut somebody off and they know how to let somebody dictate the terms of their relationship and they have a hard time doing anything in between. Like they can't imagine saying something like, I can't talk right now or no, I can't get coffee, but I hope you're having a good week. Have a nice day. Like, but they can imagine saying like, you need to stop calling me because I can't handle the idea of saying no sometimes, you know? Yeah, I think, and I think that that's exactly right. I mean, I think that like trying to, to read through the lines a little bit on in, in the letter itself and like the sort of the word choices and the way that the letter writer is explaining the situation, it does seem like they don't want to feel responsible for hurting this woman's feelings. Um, and... I think that's a a very generous and sensitive perspective to take. 
But ultimately, the goal here is to create distance between you and this person whose attentions you desire less than at the rate that they are currently giving them to you. And ultimately, somebody is going to end up feeling a little bit sad for a short period of time, which they will then get over. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think you are acting like this person has a little bit more power than they do that like fine I guess asking for my number wasn't malicious but now she's decided she's my grandma like she hasn't decided she's your grandma she asks you to coffee and she sometimes tries to give you food um let's let's not overstate things here Mm -hmm. um you feel guilty and uncomfortable at the thought of saying no sometimes to her but she's not like pounding down your door demanding that you come over and rub her feet and listen to her talk about the 40s so you know Let's let's keep things right sized here. Um, so the number of the, the things that she does are as follows. One is she calls you sometimes and asks you around for coffee. OK, um, I, a couple of things there. One, you can say, you know, nope, I'm not available for coffee. I hope you're having a great day. I got to go. That's a quick phone call. Um, if you need her to stop calling you at all, like if she's calling you every day and that's just way too much, you can say, um I'm actually not able to answer the phone when you call every day. Let me call you next time. Um, You can do that. Um, Or if you have no interest in even like once a month calling her, um, you know, you can you can go ahead and say, I I can't talk right now and then screen her calls. Like all of those are options for you. Um, If she stops you when you're out for a run, go ahead and say, I'm actually on a run right now and I can't slow down. Have a nice day. That's it. She's an old lady. She's not going to, like, run after you and mow you down. Uh, it's okay to say that. You're fine saying that. And if she says, oh, but I made this for you, you can just say, that's so kind. Still got to finish this run. Bye for now. And then start running away. You will be able to outrun her. Like, she's not – I'm not saying this to, like, laugh at the fact that she's an older woman. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pointing this out to say, like, you have a little more power here than you think that you do. Um, so don't make her responsible for the fact that you're uncomfortable saying no or not right now. I would also add um, to that that it's interesting to me how this is framed as this older woman trying to be an additional grandmother or that the, the letter writer is framing it as the older woman trying to be an additional grandmother. I would suggest maybe reframing the way that you think about this woman in your life, not that she's trying to be your additional grandparent, but that she's just trying to be your friend. And a a grandparent, grandchild relationship has so much depth of affection and intimacy. And there's such a a sort of asymmetry of care and attention that it can, if you're thinking of this person as a potential grandparent, it can feel kind of oppressive to be like, you know, stop behaving in a way that somebody who, you know, is the parent of my parent and is very active and present in my life and has a deep emotional resonant history with me behaves. And instead, maybe think, okay, this is a person who's trying to befriend me. And do I want to be friends with you? Not do I want to be your grandchild? Yeah, exactly. Um, So I I think you're 100% right. Because you're uncomfortable at saying no, you're trying to overstate what she's doing by saying, like, she's trying to become my grandma. That's clearly unreasonable. Surely I have a right to, like, push her really hard away, right? You don't need to do that. You can just, like, if she calls, you can pick up and say, I'm not able to talk right now. Hope you're well. That's a quick boundary to set. Um, If she tries to offer you food, say, I don't have time to stop right now. Have a great day. If every once in a while you can set aside like 20 minutes outside of your week to stop by her house and have that cup of coffee and then after 20 minutes say, oh, I've got to go. Like I've got a meeting or I'm meeting a friend or I have something that I can't miss. Like 
you know, I think can consider this an area where you might be able to extend some compassion and time to someone who's not like an octopus trying to like suck the energy and life out of you, um, who maybe wants a little more than you want to give, but who it seems like um, you haven't tried saying no to yet. And so if you give a little and then say, that's enough, I've got to go, um, you know, if she's able to deal with that, and my guess is she will, um, and it's not like she's asking you to like drive her around everywhere or move in with her then you might uh, experience something new and kind of unexpected and nice. Yeah, exactly. Maybe maybe it will have a, a magical happy ending and you'll get a best-selling autobiography out of it. And at worst, yeah, I, I, you've made you know both yourself and a, a, a relative stranger uncomfortable for all of five minutes and you'll both get over it and move on with your lives. Yeah. Yeah, and I just think the last thing of like, I still live with my parents. We all want to be left alone. None of us want to answer the phone. Suggests to me that this is maybe not something your parents have taught you, right? Which is like how to say no sometimes and yes other times. How to give somebody a little bit but not everything. Um, And that they too are a little unnecessarily avoidant um, when it comes to saying what you want or what you can and can't do. So, you know, this is one area where maybe you will have to learn something that your parents were not able to teach you. Um, But just because your parents are really avoidant around picking up the phone and saying, hi, oh, Gladys, nice to hear from you. How's your day going? Oh, sorry. Uh, You know, I've I've got to run. Hope you're well. Um, You can do that even if they don't do it. Um, You guys don't have to live in fear of an old lady who calls you occasionally. Um, She can't (laughs) hurt you. I promise. The worst form of terrorizing. Yeah. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. All right, moving on to something with some lighter stakes, and uh, it's your turn to read it. <laughs> Which is great. Wild tonal change. Yeah, okay. Yes. Um, The subject of this one is constantly covering. Dear Prudence, about once every two months, a group of friends of mine budget to go out to eat very good food we can't afford on a regular basis. However, one friend recently moved home and is flat broke. She constantly says she'd rather be invited and not order anything because it's all about the company. And then she picks off our plates. We're all a bit sick of it, but no one wants to exclude her because she eventually finds out and is hurt no one invited her to attend. Sometimes someone will cover her, but we're all recent college grads who can't afford to budget that much. Any ideas on how to proceed? No one wants to exclude her, but the caveat of you can only come if you can pay for yourself seems harsh. I'm reminded now, by the way, of Corey Sika's long ago all piece about how gays split the check. (laughs) Yes. Um, And the accompanying picture, which was just like a bunch of really handsome men enjoying a pool party. (laughs) That was a really iconic, iconic piece of journalism. It really, really was. Oh, my God. Um, I have so many feelings about this letter. Tell me all your feelings. Slash, has this ever happened to you? Um, Sort of. I I have... I mostly this happened because I was the broke friend. Um, mm-hmm. When I when I was a recent college grad, I um, I was the the one who was you know working in media, making pennies, and all of my college friends sort of very intelligently got jobs as 
bankers and lawyers and paralegals and things where they were making what seemed to me to be just unimaginable quantities of money. And um, I was really lucky because there were one or two people in that group who were extraordinarily compassionate about the fact that I and and another person in our group um, were were making like negative dollars. And uh, they kind of went out of their way to secretly cover us or, or sort of make sure that that we could participate in what was going on. But it was still kind of always awkward. And, you know, now that I'm in a much more financially stable position, I try to go out of my way to make sure that other people don't find themselves worrying about whether they're going to pay rent or pay for drinks. But, you know, this is this is this is a slightly different scenario, I think. Yeah. And it's always a little tricky when somebody writes and says we're all a bit sick of it. Because there's always like a weak link, right, in that group of like everyone when they get together agrees they don't like it. But then there's always one person at least who's like, eh, it's not that bad. Um, And there's always one person who's like the most upset about it. Yeah. So it it might be tricky to speak on behalf of the rest of the group. But let's, let's assume that that's not at play here. And it's just literally it's one special event every two months. Um, you know, you have a couple of options. And there's always, like, sure, you can do the thing that is just, like, the most fair thing in the world. And that's fine. Um, I, I also think it's good to live in a world where you occasionally help out a friend in special circumstances and you don't do a lot of scorekeeping. Um, I, I think this is, you know, I, I, this feels like one of those opportunities to me. Um, if it were like every time we go out to eat, she never orders food, always steals like half of ours and then like doesn't even contribute towards the tip, that would be different. Then I would say like your friend sounds like a jerk, but this feels like, I don't know, it's every two months. I don't know how much of your food she's taking, but it would be nice if maybe you just like added a couple of bucks each, um, for this temporary situation while your friend who is living with at home, like needs a hand. I agree with that with an asterisk next to it. I think that that um, given the information we have here, there's one of two scenarios that is actually happening, right? The first is that this is a group of friends who get together every two months. And the venue in mm. which they get together every two months happens to be a restaurant that's a little bit more fancy than they normally go out to eat at because, like, it's fun you know, pantomime the high life. Um, sure. But the point of getting together is getting together. And on the other hand, it could be that the point of getting together is going to these restaurants. And this is a sort of high-end cuisine appreciation club. And mm-hmm. the fact that everybody gets along and has become friends is great, but is sort of secondary to the purpose of the club, which is that we're going to go to these restaurants and we're going to experience the best that our city has to offer or whatever it might be. And I think that, that mm-hmm. what... You have just posited, Danny, like is a perfect kind of split down the middle. It's advice that that works in either one of these scenarios. But I I feel like, I don't know, I feel like the letter writer, like I feel like you're not sure which one of these it is yourself. You know, like if this is a gathering of friends, then amend the venue so that everybody can come without agita. And if this is about, you know, like foie gras aficionados club, then if you can't afford the foie gras, then it doesn't make sense to go to foie gras aficionados club because why are you even going? 
Right. And again, like if you're pretty good friends otherwise and you see her regularly, um, it is okay to talk through her hurt feelings without doing what she wants. Um, Like if if you decide as a group that this one thing is like really specific um, and that you all don't want to keep paying for her, you know, make the plans, talk to her about it. And if she says, I'm hurt, say, I would love to see you some other time. Let's plan something that you can afford, whether that's getting together at somebody's house or going on a hike or making a meal together um, and like uh, allow her to, um, you know, plan an event that she can afford. Now, if it's really just about seeing you guys, my guess is she will be able to talk through her feelings with you and and do this. If it's a little bit more, I really just want the free meal. Um you know, you don't have to worry so much about that. You can kind of let that one go. You can kind of say like, I'm sorry to hear that, but we all don't have a lot of money either. We can only afford to pay our own way. Let me know if you ever want to get together and just like watch a movie. Um, so to that, like to that extent, you certainly don't have to be responsible for her hurt feelings if she's not willing to come up with a compromise. But this all reminds me of like the most stressful meal I've ever eaten in my life, which is when I was like 21 or 22, I was visiting New York with no money. And I had like my last $20 with me. And my one thing that I had really wanted to do was like have a fancy breakfast with my friends before I had to leave. That's so lovely. And I was like, this is great because you can go to really fancy places if they do breakfast and get a really fancy breakfast, but it's still not going to be as expensive as a fancy dinner. Um, So I went with my friends to the Carlisle Hotel. Oh, no. I know where this is going. And again, had like had like planned ahead, had like looked at their menu online and was like, they have a breakfast menu. I can get like a cup of coffee and a breakfast there and tip for twenty dollars. This was like 10 years ago. Um, Like it's a it's a it's a little tricky, but I can definitely pull it off. Um, This is going to be amazing. We're going to have this like incredibly luxurious breakfast for a reasonable price. And then I can go home and like rebuild my savings. Helen, I didn't know that on the weekends, fancy hotels do fancy brunches where the prices are fixed. Oh, my God. They're so expensive. It's like $70. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. Easily. So there were four of us. And um, we went. And they were like, it is a breakfast buffet. And I was like, oh, great. OK. And like at this point, I got a feeling of like, oh, this isn't quite what I had pictured. But a website had normal prices. So I'm sure this is just similar to that. And they kept bringing us things like lobster bisque and saying, there is a champagne thing down in the cellar. Would you like to be escorted there? And I was just like, my God, this is highway robbery. And um, at the end, they brought the check and my friend Ben opened it and he looked at me with the widest eyes I have ever seen. And he said, Danny, this is $300. <gasps> and... Um, I felt so, 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 so guilty. Um, We all were overdrawn on our bank accounts that day. And it took me a couple of months to pay everybody those fees back. And I felt so, so bad. And then when we went out, because my friend is a plucky good sport, he like had a little bit more spirits. And he looked at me and he said, I stole all the spoons. Yes. Oh, yes. Ever since then, whenever I travel anywhere, um, I try to find a spoon and buy it um, and mail it to him. Oh, my God. You should steal the spoon and mail it to him. I am now at a position in my life where I don't feel like it's right for me to. St- <laughs> I mean, it's not right to steal cutlery in general. It's not. It's but, true. But, like, I have the money to buy a spoon. And I, you know, I, I, I'm not 
hey, I, I, I don't want to do that. Yeah. But yeah, I felt as bad as I've ever felt. It was a million percent my fault. None of us could afford that. And um, it was just me being so full of wishful thinking. Yeah. That's a, that's a, yeah. an amazing story. I'm so sorry. I hope you drank a lot of champagne from the champagne cellar. Like, get your $300 worth. I'm sure I did. This is before I got sober. So I'm sure I yeah. just, like, also embarrassed myself uh, in a second fun oh, God. way. You know, I, I'm just looking over the letter again while while thinking about the horror of a $300 breakfast bill. Um, and there's another aspect to this that I want to bring up, which is that um, depending on the size of, of this group of friends, and I'm assuming we're not talking like 15 people, we're talking like four or six people, like a normal restaurant table's worth of folks. Um, it's actually a not super great for the restaurant for there to be a person at a meal who is not ordering. Um, and I, I don't mean to like be taking the side of capital, but I'm thinking in terms of like the small businesses that restaurants tend to be and the extremely thin margins that they tend to run on. Your very broke friend who says, it's okay, I'll come along, I just won't order anything. Like it's kind of not super okay to do that. Um, the overhead costs of running a restaurant and making sure that there's a chair there and and the ways that servers get paid, they frequently are paid less than minimum wage thanks to uh, uh, this very upsetting legal concept called the tipped minimum where where you can be paid less than minimum wage as long as it's made up through tips that are left. All, all of this is a sort of complicated calculus that that largely relies on a person ordering food because we tip usually based on the check total. So if, you know, a server who's presumably not making a ton of money is relying on this four top or this six top to provide a certain amount of income to them and then, you know, a significant percentage of that table is simply not adding anything to the check, it's not really fair to the people whose service and labor you're relying on as you visit the restaurant. So it's another reason why I think that your friend's desire to be part of this is coming from a place of, of wanting to be included. And I, God, I relate so deeply to like the terror of exclusion. But um, I don't know. I think in general, it's it's not super cool for someone to go to a restaurant and not order anything. Like, you know, if, if I, and again, I'm coming at this from a place of, you know, I, I have enough financial luxury to be able to eat out all the time and, you know, I, I can buy my own spoons now. I like that as a, a rubric of having made it in the world. Yeah. But, um, you know, if, if we're like lingering way too long, even if I don't want dessert, I will order dessert in order to effectively pay rent for the table that my friends and I are sitting at. And um, I think there's a, that level of consideration as well to take into mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it is hard because like in addition to all the very fraught interpersonal dynamics that can come up when you share a meal with a group of friends, um, there's also the fact that like most restaurants, you know, um, underpay their staff and they, there's a whole host of like labor issues that come into play there. So it's, you know, going out to eat is never just going out to eat. There's a lot going on, but I think we've definitely spent enough time on this one. Um, <laughs> and we get to take a different money question that, Oh, this one is just meaty. All right. So the subject is in debt by myself. Dear Prudence, I grew up in a low-income family in a middle-class town. My parents both worked, but there were lean years of cold showers and bouncing checks for groceries. Our home was full of love, but we were taught never to mention these financial problems even to close friends. I graduated from an excellent university and then an elite master's program, all the while working full-time. My friends never knew I was often fighting overdraft fees. Now I have a dream career in an industry that is not lucrative. 
My husband and I met in this field, and we share ideals. He grew up wealthy, but we earn the same amount now. He knows about my upbringing and is conscious of what he took for granted as a kid. We split everything except for my six-figure student loans. A year ago, I noticed my credit score was suffering from a little loan that had slipped by the wayside. The servicer offered to fold it into the rest of my principal so that my score would go up. This, of course, just meant consolidation at a higher interest rate. My payments ballooned. I panicked, fell behind, and ultimately defaulted. My husband has no idea. I applied to a rehabilitation program, but I don't know how to tell my husband or what to do long term. He has a trust fund that equals my loan amount, but using it seems unfair. And when we got engaged, the financial advisors just blanched at my debt. I've always gone to therapy, but I never really found a therapist who understood the twisty psychological underworld of low-income living. What should I do? Oh, letter writer, I'm so sorry. You should tell your husband immediately is what you should do. Like, Yeah, abso- absolutely. <laughs> like, you don't have to keep this one to yourself. I love, by the way, that both of us, like, blurted out the first thing that came to mind. And mine was like, oh, my heart, I feel for you. And you were like, take action. Well, like, I, I both, right? Like, oh, my heart, I feel for you. But, like, oh, my gosh, the, there's so much happening here in this letter that is so many steps ahead of where you are right now. Like, we don't even need to think about your husband's trust fund. Like, we don't need to think about financial advisors. We don't need to think about how you are going to pay this off. There's one step in front of you that is the gateway to everything else. And only after you've taken this step will anything else even be able to be considered, which is you have to tell your husband This is what marriage is, right? This is what partnership is. It's that you you share each other's loads. You share each other's burdens. Like, you are in this together. And and often this is legal, right? Like, your debt is legally his debt because you are spouses. I don't actually know specifically how student loans work, and maybe that's not true. But, like— I think it both could depend on what state they're in. And it was also a little unclear to me— um, whether this was a student loan that had um, been bundled up into other stuff or just a, a, a different kind of loan. I think it's student loan, but the tiny loan slipping by the wayside language made me wonder if that was like an unrelated credit card or something. Yeah, but like the the the, the true and immediate answer to this is that much like the, the conversation that our, our very first letter writer needs to have with this woman who's who's providing them with unsolicited baked goods and phone calls, you need to have a brief conversation that will cause both you and your husband to feel uncomfortable and which will be over very quickly. Like, yeah. you just need to sit him down and say, listen, I've been keeping something from you. I feel really terrible about that, but I need to tell you the thing now. And as soon as I have told you the thing, we can start processing the fact that I've been keeping this from you, which is its own huge set of things. Um, But I have student debt and it's out of control and I feel alone and I don't know what to do next. And I need this to be something we deal with as a marriage as opposed to something I deal with alone. Yeah. And and I think, again, like framing it in that way, just like you're not telling him I need you to give me a bunch of money right now. You're saying like I need help figuring out what I'm going to do next um, and I want your support. And I, I wanted to handle this on my own. Um, I didn't want this to affect you. And so I, I tried to handle it by myself. And that just like it didn't work and it made me feel isolated. And I'm, I'm both sorry that I did that. And I also like I did it because I was anxious and scared. Um and, like, I'm also just sorry that the financial advisors that you guys saw when you got engaged, that their only response to your debt was to, like, 
kind of freak out and then not offer you any practical help. Um, and I think that can kind of go part and parcel with like your your um, your partner's general. Like it sounds like he's a pretty great guy, but that kind of just like yeah, I guess you don't come from money in the same way that I do, but let's not really worry too much about that. And again, I'm not saying that like he needs to apologize to you for having a trust fund or he should just say anything you do with regards to your loans is great and good because you come from the background that you do. But like it would be good to start by both of you being able to acknowledge like non-judgmentally that you come from a kind of financially traumatized place um, where you were told, like, never share this with people, um, keep up appearances. Um, you know, sometimes you're going to bounce checks at the grocery store and the best thing you can do is hide that from your friends. Um, and, and that's hard to unlearn. It creates a, a, like a particular mindset, as, as you know really, really well. And you need help dealing with this right now. Like you're not going to be thrown in jail for defaulting on student loans. You, you know that there's going to be a way out of this, even though it might be long and arduous. Arduous. Ugh. Thank God there's not a magazine about food called Arduous because <laughs> I have a hard time with that too. Um, but, you know, like I, I think – among the other things that you're going to want to to do is to figure out how can you find financial advisors who can offer you practical advice about like big, big loans and defaults who aren't just like, ooh, if your problem isn't I have eight trust funds, I don't know what to say to you. Like that's not a helpful financial advisor and you should fire them. Yeah. I, I, I get the sense just sort of from reading between the lines in your letter that these might not be your financial advisors, but might be the financial advisors of your husband's parents, like his family. Um, yeah. And I, I think that part of this also, exactly what you said, Danny, is you need to have financial advice that is being given to you. Um, that's not being given to you as, you know, sort of the accessory of the spouse of a wealthy person, but like a financial advisor who's speaking to you and your husband as your own unit because you guys yeah. are a family and you have shared finances and you have a shared life together. And it's such a cliche, but the the truth is, you know, like the only thing that's harder to talk about honestly than sex is money. And it's extraordinarily vulnerable. It has all of the same weird trappings as talking about sex except like it in some ways it's more intimate and it's more personal and it feels much more like opening yourself up to judgment because we attach incorrectly but we attach such a moral valence to prosperity and you're not a bad person because you have debt you are not less than your husband because you have debt and he doesn't you're just a person who has debt and he's a person who doesn't realize you have debt and you can blend those together by taking a deep breath and jumping into the swimming pool of honesty, you know, like it's going to feel really hard until you open your mouth and you're saying it and then it's going to feel really easy and you are going to feel a million pounds lift off your shoulders and then you're going to be able to move forward and solve the problem together and you eliminate what I think is the biggest problem here. The real problem is that you are carrying a secret and as soon as it's not a secret anymore. It's not going to be shame. It's just going to be yeah. something that you can tackle and you can solve and you can overcome together. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add to 
one thing that you may want to look for is a therapist who who specializes in like addressing financial issues. And I don't mean like a financial advisor who who has like a therapeutic air. I mean like a, an actual psychotherapist, like a clinician um, who specializes in things like financial trauma. Um, you can also there are some like financial psychotherapists who are also certified consumer credit counselors um, who can offer counseling and financial education, money management, budgeting, et cetera, bankruptcy advice. Um, those people exist, and I would really encourage you to seek them out. I don't have a lot of specific advice about that. Um, I imagine that it would be kind of like making sure you know the difference between like a dietitian and a nutritionist in as much as there are probably lots of people who will bill themselves as financial specialists who are in fact a little closer to a pyramid scheme. You know, do a little <laughs> research, make sure that you find somebody uh, who is, you know, certified, legitimate, um, who who doesn't promise I'm going to get you out of debt in 60 days. Um, but but look for that. Seek out therapists and, and, and financial advisors specifically who deal with people who are panicked about their debt. There's a lot of people who are panicked about their debt. Um, it's a big group of people. You are not alone there. You are absolutely not alone there. Um, and there are people who can help you out. Um, and again, that doesn't mean that this is going to be fixed in a year. But people who can help you figure out a plan um, so that you can, you know, live a life where this is something that you do have to keep an eye on, but it doesn't take over your entire future. I also would not bring up your husband's trust fund um, unless that's something that the two of you talk about fairly often. Um, mm -hmm. Bring it up if you reach a point in the conversation where the two of you are sort of sitting down and going through every possible option. But yeah. trust funds are complicated. I don't have one and I don't really know how the construction of them works. But what I have learned from watching a lot of movies and TV shows about very rich people is that they often have um, provisions and limitations and restrictive clauses. And it may be possible that your husband can't cash in his trust fund, even if he wanted to just sign all of it over to your student loan company. Um, and it may be possible that he doesn't want to for whatever reason. And I think it's worth having a secondary conversation that is not tied to your feelings of guilt and shame about the secret that you've been keeping from your husband or your very real but undeserved sense of shame for being a person who has come from a lower income class than he has. Like, don't conflate these two conversations. They're they're difficult in different ways. One of them is urgent and necessary for the health of your relationship and for, for your own health as a human being. And the other one is sort of being like, hey, like, you own this really expensive box of money. Like, what's the deal with that? Also, can I just say Fuck student loans. Seriously. Like, fuck student loans so much. Yeah, amen to you, that. You should not have to go into six-figure debt to get an education. And it's fucking unconscionable that in this country a lot of people do. Um, and, like, one of the things that you're seeing right now is just, like, the ways in which, like, having a family that has money means you can go to college um, and maintain those same, like, social and class-based signifiers uh, and then just like sail on easy breezy um, and somebody who comes from a family without money even if you like get a job with the same amount like the same salary your husband has um, because you are starting out at like a way lower point um, you're constantly trying to bail this ship out and thinking like what's the matter with me that I can't get to where my husband is um, even though you're both working the same amount um, and I'm sorry and 
capitalism is fucking garbage, and I'm sorry. Earlier in the, in the letter, you also mentioned that while you were in grad school, your friends never knew that you were overdrafting your bank account. And, you know, we've talked a lot in the last couple of minutes about how it can feel shameful to not be able to afford things, especially when other people around you seem to have everything really easy. But, like, try to teach yourself to be honest about where you are with money to other people. Try to – and that that is so much easier said than done. But if you are able to break yourself of the, the habit of lying to your friends about being okay when you're not okay, things will get easier. Everybody has been broke at some point. If not everybody has been poor, most everybody has been broke or knows what it feels like to not be able to get there or, or knows what it feels like to feel hampered in some way. And, you know, if you say to your friends, I can't go out to dinner, I'm overdrafting on my bank account, and they are cruel to you in response to that, like, dump those friends, man. Like, don't don't protect yourself from finding out your friends are assholes. Like, learn how to be honest with yourself and everything will feel less burdensome. All right. Time for the next letter, which uh, it's is mine, right? Maddening in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So many people that just need to be thrown in wells. All right. Yeah, you get to read this one. Lucky you. <laughs> the subject of this one is can't keep overlooking. Dear Prudence, after a challenging pregnancy, I had my first child five months ago. I gained 40 pounds while pregnant and I have not lost any of it yet. My husband gained a similar amount of weight during this time. While we both accept our temporarily fuller figures, my mother-in-law appears to be disgusted with us. Just one month postpartum, she began telling us that we needed to find time to work out more because the baby needs to be healthy. He was a very needy newborn. She has not relented, and it has been months. Most recently, she lectured my husband about having beer in the refrigerator because of his beer belly, and he doesn't even have one. I'm struggling with her comments because they started the moment we told her I was pregnant. I've been with my husband eight years and I've had an otherwise good relationship with my mother-in-law. But when she found out I was pregnant, she asked if I was going to have an abortion. When she saw how stunned I was by this, she claimed that any woman as serious about her career as I was wouldn't consider children. She loves our son and she is great around him, but I'm struggling to get past all of this. How do I overcome the fat shaming and hurtful comments? Mm. What the hell is wrong with this woman? Like, who, who, who in this universe responds to their son's partner of eight years saying, hey, I'm pregnant with, so are you going to get an abortion? It just feels like her thing is that she says whatever is on her mind and everyone is so busy, like, looking shocked uh, that they forget to say, what the hell? Uh, And then she just keeps on saying whatever she wants. This is like some like horrible like Ricky Gervais shock comic. I love offending people, mother-in-law. Who like? Oh God! Thank you for reminding me that Ricky Gervais is a person. Sorry um, for like sullying no, our brains with that reminder. But, like God, spent what? years trying to forget that part of the early aughts. <laughs> um, yeah, this this is a nightmare. Um, I I'm so sorry. Uh, stop telling your mother-in-law to like. You you don't need to overcome this. No. Um, you and your husband get to tell his mother um, that she can either put a lid on it or uh, she can go home. That's what you do. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, this is like the shortest answer ever. Just tell her to stop and tell her that if she doesn't stop, 
you will stop being in her life. Yeah. And this nonsense about like when you're obviously stunned because she says, are you going to have an abortion? When she tries to give you an obvious like lie, like, oh, I'm just really concerned about your career. You don't have to um, make up for her in that moment. You can continue to say like, that's a horrible thing to say or please apologize or I need you to go. All of those are really okay. Like, you don't have to buy her bullshit when she says things like, quote, your baby needs you to be healthy. Like, that is bullshit. You gave birth five months ago. Um, You grew a human inside your body. And like... Yeah, people put on some weight sometimes. Sometimes they take it off. Sometimes they don't. Um, You know... This... You know, and also like, you know, you don't have to like gently on ramp her to the idea that you guys are okay like you don't have to show up at her house with like pamphlets about health at at any size and like you know introduction to the fatosphere and stuff like that like she doesn't have to get it intellectually she just needs to stop doing it um right and you also you do not have to be the person to say all of this to her like presumably your husband has agency and she is his mother and you know i think that in in relationships the way that we parcel out sort of like the point of contact for various in-laws is not always like i'm in charge of dealing with my parents and you're in charge of dealing with your parents but usually it tends to work out pretty nicely that way and um this is a, a you know she's commenting on your husband's body too and and she's commenting on the two of you as parents and your parenting style and your child that you share together. And just because you're a mother and she's a mother, it doesn't mean that you have to be the one to have this conversation. Like, sit your husband down and be like, this is not okay. And you need to talk to your mother about this. Yeah. And like, it seems like your husband has um, maybe been used to getting like a lot of put downs um, from his mother or you both are. Because you say this has been going on since you told her you were pregnant and your baby is now five months old which means it's been more than a year of her saying just wild shit about your bodies and you don't say anything about other other than the fact that you clearly appeared shocked that time um and, and so i'm not i'm not like i don't, don't want to add to clearly you're already feeling beaten down enough but you do not deserve this this is not like normal mild family critique this is really cruel and i gotta tell you i worry about whether or not she's gonna say shit like this to your kid in a couple of years um you know i, I had a question earlier this week in the column that was about a, a woman who was a parent of an eight-year-old and a six-year-old and she was saying you know my mother-in-law um calls one of them fat all the time and compares the two of them to each other and i eight and six like that's old enough to start developing an eating disorder and like Horrible body image issues. Um, it's definitely old enough to like remember for the rest of your life um, that apparently it's okay for adults to comment on your body and um, disparage it and compare it to your siblings. Like this stuff, like carries generational weight and trauma, and it's awful and it's cruel, and it is not born out of an actual concern or interest in your health. Um, and that's like just a total bullshit excuse that you can dismiss, and you just get to say. You know, you need to stop commenting on our bodies right now. And if you can't do that, let us know when you can and we'll see you then. Yes. The universe has given you a beautiful opportunity to start enforcing boundaries right now. And yeah, and I'm sorry that 
you and your husband haven't been able to up until now, but that doesn't mean you can't start now. Yep. And the sooner you start, the easier it's going to be. Like, like you don't want to wake up in five years and realize that that this is misery and you're going to have to change your phone number and move out under cover of night and not tell her where you're going. I mean, like, enforce the boundaries now so that I mean, and this is the theme, right? And I feel like this is often the theme in a, in a lot of in a lot of answers to the to these sorts of questions. Like, you need to have a brief, uncomfortable conversation that everyone is going to get over eventually, and then then world like life is going to be better. And you know, really, I cannot say this enough. Make your husband do this. Like, make him be the person who is at least the prime mover in this conversation. Like, have him speak up to his mother. He knows her. He knows their history. They have a history together. They have a conversational dynamic. This is an opportunity for him to assert the boundaries of his primary family, which is you and your child, and say, like, this is the thing that matters to me. This is the space that I defend. And she's, you know, getting her sort of tentacles of control into your family unit and that's not okay. And it doesn't mean you have to build like a, you know, an impermeable wall between the two of you, but he needs to be able to stand up and say, you're hurting my family and I need you to stop. Right. Hopefully he does that. If he doesn't, if he's totally unwilling to, then like you have my full permission to go ahead and hold that boundary and like, fine, you know, like become like if if she if your mother-in-law wants to turn it into like I don't know why she's so mean to me. Sorry, that was like a terrible imitation of like a mean lady. Um, I found it very go evocative. just just be willing to be like, yep, I'll be the bitch today. Like absolutely, you're right. I'm totally unreasonable and I overreact to everything and get out of my damn house. Um, like if your husband can't do that, I hope he can. I hope you can encourage him too. But if he can't manage his mother. You know, you get to say, actually, um, people who insult our appearances and like nonstop nitpick what we eat and drink uh, aren't welcome in our home. We would love to see you again if you ever decide you're willing to let the subject drop. And, and that just makes it so clear that the unreasonable one is her and that what she is being asked to do is incredibly low key and easy to do. Um, but it is just I, my worry is that you feel like because we haven't effectively set boundaries with her before, if we try to do it now, it'll feel a little arbitrary and she'll she won't have gotten enough like advance warning. Right. Like she's not going to agree. She's, of course, going to think you're overreacting. She is going to try to convince you that you're bananas for objecting to what she does. That's her deal. Um, that is to be expected. Be prepared for it. Don't worry about it. She's she's bananas. She's mean. She stomps all over you. So any attempt at like setting a reasonable boundary, she is going to react to as if you have just like shoved a knife into her chest. Yep. You haven't. All you're asking her is to stop calling you fat. That's an incredibly low bar. Um, you know, I think this is one of those great examples where you can say, like, if a stranger did this to me, what would I do? And if I were walking down the street and a stranger said, you're fat and you need to lose weight and I don't think you should be eating that, I would not. Like, invite that stranger into my home. So don't do the same thing with your mother-in-law. Treat her like you would a stranger. And if she can't meet basic politeness, uh, she doesn't get to come visit. And if she ever says anything to you again that is on par with, like, asking if you're going to get an abortion when you present her with the joyous news of your pregnancy, like, practice in your head, like, starting now, right? Practice saying to her, that's not funny and that's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And just shut it down. Usually you only have to shut it down once or twice and, and then it sticks. Yeah. Well, Helen, I think we have time for a voicemail. Yes. And I'm excited about this because it's been a little while since I ran one. And this one has just been stumping me. Hey, 
Prudy. Um, I am a person who uh, manages a um, message board for people with a particular disability. And we discovered recently that one of our people who have been on that uh, message board don't have the disability, but they have BIID, which I believe stands for Bodily Integrity Integration Disorder. And so they believe they should have the disability. Uh, the, the problem that we have is that they have been using this to connect with women, to, to uh, get various kinds of attention from women uh, who also have the, the disorder that they are, that they believe that they have. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to navigate the fact that BIID is a real, a real physical issue with the fact that many of the women in the group are feeling as though they have been manipulated by this person. Um, it's a, it's a really hard issue, obviously, for people with this physical disorder. But also, I'm sure it's hard to be a person with BIID who believes that they ought to have this physical disorder. Um, and so I really am interested in this, in this issue. Uh, I, I, I should note that the, that the physical disability that I'm relate, uh, referring to is something that is often fetishized by men. And, uh, the person who has, who has joined the group is, who has B, BIID is a man. So, uh, help, uh, help. I would love some help. Thanks. Wow. Whew. So I want to start by, um, trying to limit the scope of what you and I can do today. Yeah. I think that will be helpful. Yes. Um, you manage a message board, uh, which means that, you know, you're not, um, you don't have like a legal obligation to provide a platform for all perspectives. Um, you serve a particular population. Um, and you get to decide collectively, both the moderators as well as um, the people who post on your message board, um, you know, to what extent you you all want to try to sometimes err on the side of letting everybody who might have a claim to this community in um, versus being more restrictive um, and that you are allowed to collectively make that call. You can talk amongst yourselves. You can ask for advice um, from your users and from your members. I, I don't mean you should like create a poll tomorrow on the front page of your message board, but you can act a absolutely um, say and start with, I'm really unclear here. On the one hand, I don't want to be so exclusive that we turn away people who could really use this. Um, on the other hand, I want to make sure that the people who post here feel like there's a coherent standard for um, what constitutes like a user of this group. And, you know, how closed do we want to be? These are all totally okay questions to ask as a group. Um, and, and you get to figure that out. There's not one right or wrong way to be a message board. Some message boards are really highly moderated and restrictive and others are a lot more like open. And if you if you all decide collectively that you want to be one and a bunch of people decide we'd rather be the other way, they can go start another one. So you're not like 
I, I think you can relieve a little bit of the pressure here because it's not like the decision that you make will ultimately decide whether or not this particular individual can ever talk to other people about their like BIID. Um, it's it's not like you are the only thing standing in the way between this guy and meaningful connection, help, solidarity, whatever. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that that was perfectly expressed. And I, I think that um, your concern for the well-being of the people who've come to your message board who don't have BIID but who have the, the disorder that your message board is ostensibly creating a community around, that it sounds like that is your priority. And, you know, I, I, I think, you know, Danny and I are giving you permission to say that you can restrict the scope of that. You can, you know, choose to serve the people that you've chosen to serve and that you've chosen to be a community creator for. Yeah, I, I, I will just pause and quickly say, I don't know, you say that you've recently discovered this, so I, I assume it's not that this guy told you that. Certainly to whatever extent you you can, you know, make sure that you have all the relevant information. If this is just a rumor or something you're not sure about, I would not encourage you to make a decision based on something you're not sure about. But then again, like to that extent, I would not encourage you to like contact somebody you don't know and demand that they furnish you with proof of their disability. There's kind of like a, a, a bad habit of that among um, a lot of uh, people. Like you, you, you often hear about people who, for example, like have a placard that entitles them to a particular parking space. And if they don't like, quote, look disabled enough, people harass them and sometimes they're even violent with them. So I certainly I don't know what kind of information you have. But um, if you're able to get clarity or if you're you're quite sure that this is an accurate assessment of the situation, I think you have enough information to make a decision. Um, if you don't and there's no way to get more information without like demanding somebody else prove their disability to you, I think it's probably better to err on the side of not doing that. Because I think yes. the thing there would always be um, if there is a chance that I am like harassing or making life more difficult uh, for a person with this disability – uh, err on the side of not doing that. So what I understand about BIID is um, that it is generally something that comes up in individuals who feel that they should have one or more of their limbs amputated. Um, and it's mm-hmm. it's a kind of psychologically controversial state of being. Um, I don't know if it's recognized as a specific thing in the the. DSM five, but um, but it's a thing. I believe right? that it's not. I believe it was not in either the DSM five or the DSM four. Right, and uh, but it, you know, it, it's individuals who who feel in a in a fairly body dysmorphic sense that that they should have one or more of their limbs amputated. Um, it's incredibly complicated. It's a it's a complicated on every conceivable level, and seems to make a lot of sense to me, especially if you're concerned that people in this space that you've created where people can come to for support and security and to feel like they're part of a community interact with a man who and I'm what I'm getting from the voicemail here is that he misrepresented himself, that instead of saying that he was a person with BID, that he stated that he was a person who had the physical disability as the people on your boards had, and and perhaps he does not actually have it. I mean, I would imagine that simple misrepresentation is against 
your community guidelines. So you don't have to explicitly yes. say no people with BID are allowed in this space. I think what you can say is you have to be honest about who you are. Right, because I imagine some people who post on the message board may be like partners um, of people or family members of people. And, you you know, I, I don't know. Maybe that's not the case. But, yeah, you don't have to say, like, the problem is that you misrepresented yourself in order to get people to share vulnerable information um, and that that's grounds for, um, you know, not being able to post. It is particularly commendable that you're looking out for um, the potential of, of people in your community to be sexually exploited. And that's an incredibly tricky line to to maintain, to make sure that people have the space to express their full consensual sexual selves without putting themselves into a position or without you feeling like you have facilitated them ending up in a position where they feel objectified, taken advantage of, fetishized in ways that they do not want to be. I do think that all of that kind of winds up being solved by a certain amount of umbrella policy of it is not okay to misrepresent yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, I, what I'm hearing here is is the fear of, is there any chance that I just don't know enough about this? And it's, it's, it's actually like... Um, something that I should be kind of bending over backwards to accommodate or, you know, I, I'm inclined to think of like that really strange Twitter thing that happened this week where somebody announced that this like semi-popular like women's comedy tweet account was actually being run by a guy who was using his now ex-wife's avatar and like she was divorcing him and getting custody of the account. It was very strange and very messy. Um, and at least part of the, like, discomfort it seemed like some people had around it was they were like, is it okay to think this guy did something really goofy or am I being incidentally transphobic if I do so? And, like, certainly as you and I were talking about this, I think one of the things that came up for both of us is it was like, well, like, like some people claim that it's a, like, sexual fetishism thing and some people claim that it's a mental disorder. And, like, I was like, oh, that makes me feel uncomfortable because people have said that about being trans before and I'm trans and I don't like it when people say that about me. Um, I think it's always really great to just say, I don't have to compare this to other things. This can just be what it is right now. Um, and you are not making any kind of official qualified ruling about the causes or the effects or the treatments for this particular diagnosis, right? That's exactly it. You're not saying, you know, this person has an awful evil fetish and they are a predator and you're not saying this person is uh, in need of medical treatment or, or anything else. You're just saying you're, you're clarifying who's the population that we serve. Does this particular person fall under that umbrella? It sounds like the answer is no. Um, and to that ex like to that end, you can encourage this person to go look for support elsewhere. Um, but that this community is not for them. Yeah, it it it's complicated, but it's also kind of simple. And and again, I just I want to be like really clear, like I, I you know, it's okay to feel uncomfortable, and it's okay to think, you know, but if I feel this way about one issue, don't I have to be consistent about it with all issues? No, that's the great part about being alive. Different things can be different, um, and that's really really fine. But yeah, I, I think. Um, you know, the thing that you need to take away from this is the fact that many of the women in the group feel as if they've been manipulated. Um, if this guy lied to them about the nature of um, his lived experience in order to get them to confess 
intimate, vulnerable things, um, then that is a very good reason to suggest that he should look for community elsewhere. And you're not like consigning him to outer darkness. He can go on the whole rest of the Internet. You know, there's a big Internet out there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't even know how to, what to add to this. It just I'm so sorry that that the people who came to your forum looking for safety found themselves in a position where they felt taken advantage of. And I'm so grateful that someone with your conscientiousness is looking out for yeah. them. Yeah. And it's not like cruel or dismissive if you say like you have violated our terms of service and you got to go. Um, classic mod good, behavior you, you know like yeah the internet survives because of mods like you you're doing yeah. the real work yeah you can just focus on the behavior you don't have to worry about what kind of help he may or may not need um he can figure that out that's not your problem your problem is just maintaining a message board where like to the best of your ability you make sure that it serves the member it the members that it it, it, it tries to serve um this might be a, a fun and exciting opportunity also to to consider revisiting the rules of the message board or creating a code of conduct or getting feedback from active members and, and you know, maybe everybody, not just active members, but, you know, especially the lurkers to find out, you know, right. what is it that they're looking for? Like consider the community as a whole. And yeah. and this can right. be just and part of I it. I know like my lawyer friends will sometimes say like extreme cases make bad policy like we're not suggesting that you need to set up a series of rules that assume that bad actors like this are going to keep coming in like you don't have to um, suddenly start demanding credentials from everybody but but yeah take this opportunity to kind of reassess well what are our values who do we want to prioritize um, and how can we kind of make it clear, not necessarily while like checking for evidence every time somebody tries to post, but how do we make it clear like who's this for? So that people can make informed decisions if it doesn't apply to them, that they should look elsewhere. Um, and then again, you know, hope that you're able to maintain good boundaries without demanding people like uh, show you their medical records before asking a question. It's a hard balance to strike and I commend you. It's hard work. It is. All right, Helen, I'm never answering another question again. I'm done. Yeah, that was like that is that is a, a real blockbuster of a question. That one. Yeah, they were all big ones. And I just, I, I want to just like eat a spoonful of peanut butter and then nap for like a week. <laughs> I do want to start referring to myself as other people's love. Oh boy. I just want to introduce myself as I'm Helen, Danny's love. I'm Helen, Brian's love. I mean, f follow your bliss. I never want to hear that expression ever again. You don't want to be ensconced in my life and my love? Ensconced. I don't intend to subvert <laughs> your love. It was so like, I, I don't know. It was very charming. It was very like, I'm so hostile that my hostility is going to take the form of heightened politeness and correctness of speech. Right. Like whenever you ratchet up into into high diction, that's like a really good sign that like, you know, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um I don't know that I've ever described myself as being ensconced in anything, um, but I'm going to try. <laughs> like a big cardigan or like a a sofa. But I'll, I'll figure out something to ensconce myself in. <laughs> Helen, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate you so, so, so much. What are you uh, what are you cooking right now? Um, I have been really into spaghetti and meatballs lately. 
I like it, there's something super cla- I mean I make pasta all the time but like spaghetti and meatballs is simul- it, it, there's something very iconic about that and like who who like makes spaghetti and meatballs yeah i mean i'm right there with i do not disagree that is an iconic dish it's been awesome making it like you make the meatballs and like they just they get better like making meatballs is kind of like making a stew where like they taste way better the next day because of the way that that meat and fat work with flavors and things like that like you so you make this huge pot of meatballs and sauce and then you stick it in the fridge and then the next day all you have to do is boil spaghetti and heat up the meatballs and sauce and you have a very fast dinner that took you four hours the day before and you feel like a a prince like like it's it's amazing it's like red sauce royalty it's heaven i'm so into it i'm so so like ashamed that i tried to say pasta is really good in the middle of that lovely um speech about how good it is (laughs) that you can just very quietly hear me say pa in the middle of it pasta is really good we should just run an undercurrent of that underneath the whole pasta, like like subliminal messaging under everything. Pasta is really just good. Pa. pa. All right, Helen, thank you so, so much. Have a fabulous rest of the day. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music is composed by Robin Hilton. Production assistance was by Taylor Simmons. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute. Tops. Thanks for listening. And on today's plus segment... Presumably there's a reason that his love, I love that phrasing, right? My love. This is his love, his love, Esther. I found the language that the two of them used in their, like, Facebook messages to one another to be absolutely astonishing. I mean, it's amazing. Which is, like, who writes like that? I don't (laughs) know. I feel like somebody who's, like, about to become an Instagram scammer calls themselves somebody else's love. Like, it's such a weird way of being like this is how serious we are words like girlfriend or partner don't apply to us to listen to the rest of that conversation join slate plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash life's gotten mundane so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to lucky land you know what they say Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.